Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, it's Tuesday the 17th of October and this is Money Talk, a warm welcome from me, Peter Lewis. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. This is the show that brings you some of the best discussion and debate on Asia's top business and finance stories of the day. And in those headlines for today, the People's Bank of China injected a total of 789 billion yuan into the banking system via a one-year medium-term lending facility yesterday and left the interest rates unchanged at 2.5%. And with 500 billion yuan of MLF loans set to expire this month, the operation resulted in a net 40 billion US dollar fund injection into the banking system. That's the biggest medium-term liquidity injection since December 2020. Bloomberg reported yesterday that the US plans to tighten sweeping measures to restrict China's access to advanced semiconductors and chip-making gear, seeking to prevent it from obtaining cutting-edge technologies that could give it a military edge. The latest rules aim to refine and close loopholes from curbs announced last October. The Bank of England still has some work to do to get national inflation back to its 2% target, the central bank's chief economist Hugh Pill said yesterday. He also said we probably have some work to do to ensure that when we get it back to 2%, we do so in a way that's sustainable. The Bank of England ended a run of 14 straight interest rate hikes on September the 21st when committee members voted 5-4 to four in favour of maintaining the current rate of 5.25%. Our panel of guests this morning discussing some of those stories are Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. And while you're there, take a look at my daily newsletter, which has a host of information on the topics we'll be talking about today. On Wall Street, stocks saw a broad-based rally on Monday, retracing sharp moves at the end of last week as risk appetites recovered. The S&P 500 climbed 1.1% to end the day at 4,374, rebounding from Friday's half a percent decline. The Dow saw its best day since September, closing 314 points higher, that's a third of a percent, at 33,985. The Nasdaq Composite added 1.2% to 13,568. All 11 S&P 500 sectors ended the day higher. And third quarter earnings season begins in earnest this week, with 11% of the S&P 500 slated to report results. Notable names to come include Johnson & Johnson, Bank of America, Netflix and Tesla. U.S. government debt sold off, with 10-year Treasury yields rising 7 basis points to 4.7% after dropping 18 basis points last week. The two-year yield climbed 4 basis points to 5.10%, and oil prices fell Monday, following their biggest one-day surge in six months on Friday. Brent crude, the international benchmark, settled 1.4% lower at $89.65 a barrel. On Friday, Brent jumped 5.7%, taking its gains last week to 7.5%. The US dollar was softer Monday in line with the general improvement in sentiment. The US dollar index fell 0.4% to 106.2% after jumping nearly 1% higher over the past two sessions as escalating tensions in the Middle East boosted safe haven demand for the currency. 
Traders of Chinese stocks backed away from the market ahead of third quarter GDP numbers and key activity data due tomorrow. Investors were also downbeat after Bloomberg News said the US plans to tighten sweeping measures to limit China's access to advanced chips. The Hang Seng Index fell 173 points, or 1%, to 17,640. The Tech Index tumbled 1.8%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down half a percent to a seven-week low of 3,074, sliding for the second straight session. It does look like uh, markets are going to rebound a little at the open. Futures markets pointing to a gain in the Hang Seng of about 200 points. That's 1.1%. Uh, markets should open at around about 17,835 level. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And on this Tuesday morning, time to welcome our guests and welcome back, Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant. It's been a while. Nice to hear you and see you again. Yeah, thank you, Peter, and uh, welcome. Yes, I've been in the UK for the last six weeks and enjoying the glorious sunny weather. <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> also it was with us, possible. Oh, okay. Well, we'll hear more about this shortly. We're also with us, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Morning to you, Richard. Hello, Peter. And over in Washington, D.C., as always on a Tuesday morning, nice to find our economics correspondent and writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Good morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Uh, Let's start with the Chinese economy. A lot of data out um, over the last few days. The People's Bank of China, as we heard earlier, did inject um, a record amount of liquidity into the banking system, the most since December 2020, but did keep interest rates unchanged at 2.5%. That could well be a precursor to the loan prime rate, which the PBOC will announce on Friday. Um, amongst the activity data, um, probably the most notable uh, was uh, was China's CPI, Consumer Price Index, back at 0%. Um, Stuart, I know you've been away, so maybe you haven't been focusing a lot on the Chinese economy. But nevertheless, I don't think a lot has changed since you were, since you were last here, is it? It still seems to be tr- struggling to get traction. Yes, and um, in the weeks before I was away, the non-stop talk was about property debts of uh, Evergrande and um, Country Garden. That doesn't seem to have got any better either. Um, And what I was quite interested in learning when I met up with different people in the UK is that there is an interest over there in in the UK about what is happening in China. Um, And there is a lack of knowledge and understanding about what's going on in China as well. It's not being communicated terribly well within the UK, maybe Europe as well. Um, And I think that's possibly somewhat deliberate on the part of China because, uh, frankly, the scale of the debt problem that they have got is is really large. Um, Yeah, so the PBOC having to inject money into the banking system is is indeed designed to sort of keep propping up the the, um, economy. And uh, I think the PBOC will have to continue to do that for a little while yet. Mm. It's an important day for Country Garden because officially, I think at the end of today, it's in default unless it can cough up uh, the money on the uh, the Hong Kong bond that it didn't pay um, at the end of last month. So that, that we've yes, got some so big all, deadlines, haven't we? In effect, it's already in default. And I think that, uh, you know, given that it's got uh, $150, $200 billion of debt, 
with a, without any ability to repay it. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a not going to last very much longer in its current format. Mm. How do they get out of it? I don't think anybody knows, and um, and I think this is this is part of the problem that China is facing. Richard knows. How how do we get out of it? <laughs> I, I wish I did. If I did, I'd probably be sitting on a, a beach with a drink and an umbrella in it. Um, no, I, I think that probably what we're likely to see is is these companies will become zombie companies. They will continue. Um, the debt will probably be taken on in some kind of bad bank or, or bad debt company uh, and managed that way. But I think there's no doubt that although the government... I think these days is not terribly worried about these companies technically going bust. Um, clearly, they can't really afford to have these uh, th- these businesses go completely under. You know, they would cause complete carnage in terms of what's happening in the market. So I think the businesses themselves will continue, but financially, there clearly has to be an enormous amount of restructuring, and it's going to be the um, uh, the government's coin that ultimately will do it. Mm. Well, what's interesting is that hearing there, Stuart, earlier, I mean, how little has changed, you know, over the last six or seven weeks. We're talking about exactly the same things, aren't we? Uh, uh, the economy is sort of struggling to gain traction. Consumers don't want to spend. The property crisis isn't over. Um, and, and the PBOC in Beijing are sort of trying to do little bits of piecemeal stimulus. It's been the same like this for a few months, really, hasn't it? I think the the problem has been that they have been doing it piecemeal. I mean, what we've been saying for some time is that the Chinese authorities are probably going to have to get to the stage where they need to reflate the economy in a big way. Uh, don't forget, this has happened in the West in, in most countries, you know, and there's been an explosion of debt as a result. I think the Chinese authorities are less enthusiastic about having this kind of explosion of debt because they've had problems in the past with it. But I think it's getting inevitable in terms of the fact that the economy doesn't really want to recover by itself. It's going to have to have uh, some medicine in order to be able to help it do that. And that's why I'm not overly bearish from now on in terms of the Hong Kong-China markets, although I think the recovery is going to be slow. Mm. Barry, Stuart was saying that there's not much understanding in the UK of, of what's going on in China. What, what's what, Is that the same in the US? Are people focused on what's happening over here? Do they understand what's happening in China? No, is the short answer. Look, the specialists, of which there are hundreds, perhaps thousands, they know, and they have strong opinions. The mass public, not at all. Mm. And of course, given where the United States is with Israel versus Hamas, that's all you hear about at the moment. So there's almost no generalized interest in China except to say they've got a problem and it's not getting better. I'm wondering, Richard, when you say that something big has got to be injected, are you thinking fiscal policy? Are you thinking stimulus? Or are you thinking monetary easing further? I, I think they have to go the whole way. You know, we've seen the big bazookas uh, uh, be brought out in, in Europe, in the US, at, at times when economic growth has been difficult. And I find it difficult to imagine that the Chinese are going to be able to resist that. You know, there are a whole bunch of political reasons, social reasons, economic reasons why the Chinese economy needs to get back on track. Um, and I think the authorities are going to have to to, to grab the bull by the horns or maybe the bull market by the horns and just just um, 
get it going by reflating the economy. And that's why I think we've probably seen the bottom of the Chinese um, and Hong Kong markets, but uh, the recovery will be slow. Mm. They're, they're talking about, aren't they, increasing the budget deficit. They've got this 3% cap and in effect, you know, engaging in fiscal stimulus, which is sort of admitting that the local governments can't do any more. Beijing's sort of stepping in to try and um, fund a lot of these infrastructure projects. But it doesn't say much about the, 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 the armory that the local governments have because they're in so much trouble. Well, many of the many of the local governments are themselves bankrupt anyway. Um, but they, they also have lent to property. They have also built property. They, I mean, it, it's it, it's it's the national disease almost of China. The property is uh, is falling apart in terms of the economy. Um, what I haven't heard of, and and I suppose it's something that we probably we'll wait and see, is to what extent the golden week, 1st of October week, when the country was on holiday, has been a boost or otherwise to the economy through spending and, and local travel. Um, you see, I think that's what something, that's probably also what uh, the government are waiting on, because that is usually quite a popular time in the year for people to get out and about, spend some money, have a holiday and uh, and, and and so on, which would appear not to have been the case this year from early reports. Yeah, it looked like spending was up about one and a half percent compared to pre-pandemic levels. So I suppose at least an improvement, but but nothing spectacular. Yeah, that's not really in line with what they would probably be expecting. Pre-pandemic um, uh, and, and economic growth and things like that, it's, uh, it, it's not enough to keep this economy uh, moving in the direction they want it to move. Mm. Barry, we had this story um, yesterday, which was first reported by Bloomberg, that the US is going to tighten these measures on China's access to advanced semiconductors and, and chip making um, gear. Um, and it's going to refine and close some loopholes in the curbs announced last October. Are, are you hearing any more there about what exactly um, the U.S. is planning to do there? No, I have not heard anything more, Peter. I do think that this is all really related in large part to Huawei and the fact that the Huawei has been able to apparently produce a very or manufacture or have assembled a very sophisticated chip that uh, will allow the company to um, revive and, and to prosper. I think that um, there's a lot of research going on right now in Washington and elsewhere as to what happened and how did that happen. So we shall see. But I think that, uh, again, the only things that the Congress are agreed on is support for Israel and a tough stance against China. So... It's not a surprise that the Americans are trying to tighten the restrictions that were imposed some months ago. I think the risk is that there'll be more tightening and more restrictions announced. On, on this Huawei chip, I mean, I'm just wondering how the U.S. can do very much about it. This is a Chinese company which, in effect, has bought a chip from another Chinese company, SMIC, uh, which is developed by whatever means, um, you know, a, a seven nanometer a nanometer chip, which is pretty high um, sort of spec. But what can the US do to, to stop, um, you know, Chinese companies sort of purchasing components from other Chinese companies? And, and why does that? Well, even... you're absolutely right. I think what they are first doing is talking to the Dutch 
uh, about uh, the the role that they have played in in this fabrication process, and then to TSMC, and then to Samsung, because uh, I think there's skepticism in Washington as to whether the Chinese developed this completely on their own. Mm. Stuart and Richard, what, what do you make of this? I mean, this is, you know, we have all these uh, US officials going over to China saying, you know, we want to engage, we want to develop relationships with you. And then they come back and, and go and ramp up the sanctions that are already pretty restrictive on Chinese companies. Well, you know, we're beginning to learn to discount the views of most US politicians. Um, <laughs> you can drop the word US. <laughs> um, but I mean, they 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 do these trips um, as much as anything to get out away from their immediate constituents, so that they can get, try and uh, understand a little bit what's going on in the world, and then they go back and then talk as if they've not learned anything at all. Um, it's a it's a frustrating issue. Um, the, the 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 whole world economy is dependent on each other. And um, it is there is a high level of jealousy, I think, within the U.S. these days about how China has managed to get so far ahead of the U.S. in developing chips, developing uh, products, developing things that uh, the U.S. should have been able to do and hasn't been able to do. Yeah, I think that that's partly because of, you, you know, if China focuses on a particular area that the U.S. isn't, it is going to go ahead. Um, but uh, I, I'm old enough to actually remember the sanctions uh, on uh, Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia in the 60s. Uh, I was very young then, of course. Um, <laughs> but I think what happened then was that, yes, sanctions are fine initially, but eventually they wear off and the Chinese will end up developing their own chips that they can't get them from anywhere else. They they will develop their own. And in certain parts of certain sectors of that industry, they may even be better than everybody else. Nobody can be the best at everything. Um, the US, uh, of course, is, is very far advanced in the tech side. It was early in doing it. It has the right uh, kind of economic setup to be able to encourage entrepreneurism and creativity, which is, which is good. Um, uh, but when you get down, as we've seen in many countries' development over the years, down to the um, manufacturing stage and the development of ideas, development of that creativity stage, very often countries, companies will leapfrog the original mm. uh, inventors. Uh, and I've no doubt that in certain sectors, the Chinese will actually start to uh, exceed the uh, capabilities of U.S. technology. And quicker Richard, than I think expect. you're... you're, you're you're absolutely spot on on that. In terms of sanctions, there's there have been a number of studies now that show that sanctions essentially are counterproductive. And that uh, if you take the case of semiconductors, where the Chinese are already actively involved, and let's not forget, China produces more engineers annually than the rest of the world combined. So and this is this is not a technologically backward country. It's an advanced country in terms of engineering and technology. So I think the sanctions that the Americans and the Europeans are imposing on semiconductors and other AI, etc., really are a gift to the Chinese because it accelerates their own capacity and their own determination to overcome these sanctions. Mm. And they're doing it far quicker than people expected as well, I think, aren't they, Barry? I think they are. And I Richard, you may have been a child, but I was in Rhodesia when some of those sanctions were announced, not in the 60s, but in the 70s. And 
you know, even in the case of Southern Rhodesia, they really did a lot to develop their own procedures, in particular their own manufacturing, gave a huge boost to the Rhodesian manufacturing sector, and certainly the agriculture sector. The sanctions, and of course then the South Africans, their major client sponsor, uh, didn't observe them, so that helped a lot as well. Now, while we're on the subject of the, the U.S. barrier, are we going to have a House Speaker tomorrow, by the end of tomorrow? You know, I think the embarrassment level is rising daily among the Republicans. There's deep embarrassment that they've gotten themselves into this mess and almost a laughingstock, not just in Washington, but throughout the country and the world. So will they have someone tomorrow? Jordan has been working very hard, the, the Jim Jordan from Ohio, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to do what uh, Steve Scalise could not do to overcome what happened to Kevin McCarthy. I think it's anyone's guess, but I think most Republicans are of the view we've got to do something this week. And I think that probably is likely. He's a hard right Republican, isn't he? So if he does win, um, is he going to be able to work with Democrats to get anything done? Because they're, they're, they're going to have to work together to get bills passed, aren't they? Yeah, look, hard right. Uh, yes, he's certainly a Trumpist and he's part of the Freedom Caucus. But he is and he's been very much on this case of uh, the president's son. However, uh, I think he wants to get something done. And there's no way that Democrats would help any Republican speaker. Let's not forget the vote against Kevin McCarthy. The members and all of them had to register their votes, Democrats and Republicans. The vote was simply, should the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, be removed? And there was not one Democrat who said no. So the Democrats were, in fact, partisan to that or part of that procedure to undo Kevin McCarthy. All it needed was a few Democratic votes and he would still be the speaker. Obviously, I was dead wrong on this some weeks ago, but I think the Republicans are so embarrassed, so damaged that Jordan has probably got a decent chance. Yeah, actually, I, I thought of that with the Democrats. You wonder why they didn't get a little bit more political about it and maybe just keep McCarthy there by one or two votes and just keep him twisting in the breeze because that would have been very damaging to the Republicans. Yeah, they'd have needed more than that, though, Richard, because there were quite a few Republicans that voted against McCarthy. And it was, it was the Republicans that actually put McCarthy out um, because of the numbers of, um, of, of them that voted against him. Um, yes, so it was the Democrats that actually... Uh, the Democrats could have voted for him, and they well, would they have could. been more... Uh, he would have stayed in. But the politics is partisan, and therefore it's uh, it's very clear, you know, the Democrats yeah. will be willing to inflict as much damage against their opposition as they could. Yep. Barry, assuming we do get a speaker tomorrow in the in the vote um, in in the House, I presume that once he's uh, in position, the priority is going to be Israel and and finding funds for Israel. What's the the, <laughs> the U.S. seems to have really um, sort of staked its claim to supporting Israel in this conflict. Boy, that's for sure. That is for sure. No, the first order of business will be a resolution that simply says we support Israel and the Democrats will support that. And then it goes to the Senate. They'll support it. The question is money. 
And I think, you know, the Israelis already get more foreign assistance than any other country. I think it's been $3 billion so far this year. But now the president wants to do both additional money for Israel to buy weapons, more weapons. Uh, in fact, Senator Schumer, as soon as he got back from China, went right off to Israel as soon as he could change planes and get a different uh, contingent to go with him. Uh, he's got a list that the Israelis have handed him. So that will go through. The question is, there are many Republicans who don't want the Ukraine money to be connected to it because they're for other political reasons. But you're quite right. Yes, the first order of business will be aid for Israel. Richard and Stuart, what's interesting is once again, the US and China are on opposite sides of the fence here. We had that very, while well, President Biden was very strongly supporting Israel, China's foreign ministry came out very strongly supporting Palestine, saying that uh, Israel's actions go well beyond self-defense and uh, calling for a Palestinian state and, uh, you know, the, the, end of, um, the end of the bombings and the, the, the airstrikes. Yeah, and, well, and I, China has... China hasn't really condemned Hamas for their incursions and their rockets. So, you know, I think China is going to have to think quite carefully where it wants to be on the world stage. It is, it is a delicate position because it's, it's difficult for China to, uh, impossible for China to fully support the U.S. And yet there is a point. I mean, I... I take a, should we say, a, a very broad view on these things. And I've actually read quite a lot about Israel's early history in the last um, week or so, because, you know, in history, one one jolly thing follows another. And um, there is a sense of irony, I think, there in us condemning Putin as a war criminal and seeing rockets fire into a residential building in Kiev. And then seeing the same thing in Gaza, you know, I, I think it it does require stepping back a little bit and just having a look at the two uh, and, and then defining where you are. Mm. Well, this is sadly going to run and run, I think. Let me ask you both, because you've both just come back from the UK. Uh, we haven't talked about the UK uh, for a while, but the UK is probably the, the one European economy that's still struggling with inflation, isn't it? Trying to get it back down uh, to targets. Uh, the Bank of England's chief economist, Hugh Pill, uh, said the uh, the central bank still has some work to do to get it to its 2% target and then has even more work to do to make sure it stays um, there. And that was after it ended 14 straight uh, runs of interest rate hikes in September, keeping interest rates unchanged at five and a quarter percent. Stuart, you've, you've spent a few weeks there now. What's your assessment of the, the state of the UK economy? Um, the UK economy is actually a lot stronger than the forecasters are talking about. I think that um, we've had uh, IMF reports, we've had World Bank reports, and and in the past they've they've, they've given their their view, and then ultimately when the numbers have been uh, calculated in retrospect, they've turned out to be better than the forecasts. Mm. So. Um, I think we, we, I think most of the global economy economists and others are underestimating how the economy is doing. Um, we're at, in the final stages of the um, party political uh, uh, convention season. Uh, we've had uh, all the major parties, and now the, some of the minor parties, all having their conferences, and uh, therefore there's been a lot of noise about this. One one thing that I've I, I picked up 
quite um, clearly over the last few weeks has been the concern that the UK, and in particular the City of London, is not attracting deals in the same way as it used to, and therefore is beginning to lose out to other European uh, markets like Paris or Frankfurt, but especially losing out to the US, where companies go and get listed and then raise more money than perhaps uh, they would do if they had been listed in their home location. Although, um, quite interestingly, uh, Birkenstock, who are the fashionable shoes company, um, uh, most recent example of a European business going to list in the US, raising more money than they would have been able to raise if they'd listed in Frankfurt, for example. But then immediately after the stock has got listed, it's, it falls in price quite sharply. There's that. Uh, and, and one other, uh, and I think really important issue that is going on at the moment, um, is that the UK is absolutely petrified of incurring bed bugs from France from France. <laughs> it, it's not I, because they're bed bugs, it's because they're French bed bugs. French exactly. Bed bugs. Yes. <laughs> Apparently the French hotels have been uh, totally invaded by bed bugs. And now the, um, <laughs> the 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 airlines and the trains are already having to be fumigated every day to prevent these bed bugs from crossing the channel into England. So um, there's some serious stuff going on here. It's nice to know the British sense of perspective and prioritising is, is alive and well. Richard, you, you, you've just got back from uh, the UK as well. Yeah. Any, any problems with bed bugs? Well, well I think I, I, uh, in terms of what Stuart's observation are, that the UK economy is doing quite well. Certainly anecdotally it is. And I think what we forget in many of these Western countries is that there's um, uh, it's an older population and there's a huge sector of the population who are on final uh, salary pension schemes. That's basically where you get uh, a half or two thirds of what your final salary was um, uh, when you retire. Um, they're now living another 20 odd years, more than they were expected to live. There's a big chunk of the population out there that's quite wealthy, that has a lot of income coming in, that doesn't have to worry about inflation, doesn't have to worry about interest rates, um, and they can support a big chunk of the economy. You know, many of them are spenders, thanks to inheritance tax. Um, and I think that that's helping to, to keep the economy going. So I, I think it's wrong to assume that, you know, the British economy is, is going downhill. It is changing fast. Brexit has been enormously damaging, um, but it's, it's ticking along quite well, which is more than I can say about the political environment, where it appears that politicians can't really hang, hang things together at all. Um, one thing I would say is I had a very interesting conversation with a Hong Kong couple who had emigrated to the UK recently. They got jobs immediately. They were terribly homesick for Hong Kong. Um, but they did recognize that even though they were earning a lot less in the UK than they were in Hong Kong, that there are a lot of benefits too. Um, uh, you know, higher tax benefits, uh, free medical, free schooling, uh, often in many cases um, free or, or low-cost transport in, in particular areas. So um, I think we have to be careful that we see the UK in too bad a light from Hong Kong, and equally so that we see Hong Kong in too bad a light from the UK. You know, the grass isn't always greener where the press is concerned. 
And of course, there's an election coming up next year, isn't there? Which uh, things are, are not looking that good for the for the ruling Conservative Party led by uh, Rishi Sunak. Well, that's right. And one does wonder about the policies of the other side. Um, both uh, parties are incredibly introspective and haven't really come up with anything that has attracted the electorate so far. So um, it just looks as if it's going to be a complete omni-shambles, which is a well-known political phrase in UK politics. Mm. But it, it's, it's coincidental that uh, the UK election could occur almost at the same time as the presidential election in the US. And so, you know, we've got a fairly serious problem going to occur as both countries have got a pretty disastrous political situation. Mm. There's a difference, though, isn't there, from the last time around in the UK? At least now the uh, the Labour Party, it looks electable, doesn't it? Keir Starmer looks like, you know, he could be a prime minister, which probably is fair to say wasn't the case um, when Labour was led by Jeremy Corbyn. He doesn't look like a prime minister. He's not charismatic, but he is the alternative. Um, and I think just about an acceptable alternative to maybe get them over the line. Yeah. Well, he, he may do, but um, uh, honestly, I, I think that uh, there's still a long, long way to go in this in this political situation. No, no simple answers. Oh, okay. Weeks is a long time in politics. Indeed. Weeks a long time in the markets as well. Let's have a quick chat about <laughs> the uh, what's going on in the market. We seem to be oscillating day by day from risk on to risk off. When it's uh, risk on, like today, stocks get bought, uh, the dollar falls, the gold falls, oil falls, and then the opposite on the, uh, on the risk on days. But I suppose there is one overall trend, isn't there, which is that bond yields are moving steadily higher and higher. And we've got the two-year yield now consistently above uh, 5%, the 10-year yield. Um, around four and three quarter percent. We're going to have to get used to these higher yields, aren't we, and take them into account um, when we look at markets? Absolutely. Um, I think this is the real change that's occurred in the States in the last two or three weeks. People are now aware, investors are aware, that interest rates are going to be higher for longer. I think there was a belief before that if they stumbled into a recession, there would be early cuts in interest rates. The recession doesn't seem to be on the horizon. So people are trying to come to terms with higher rates. And that has really, I think, as you suggested, Peter, caused this volatility in the stock market. It is surprising, however, if you go back a week with this terrible situation in Israel and Gaza, that oil has not skyrocketed, that the stock market has not collapsed, that's a surprise. Um, we shouldn't be dismissive of higher interest rates simply because higher interest rates are very good for savers. Mm. And you know, a lot of people have been living off zero interest. Now they're getting up to 4 or 5%. Um, and, and it's putting money in their pockets. It'll take a little while before that feeds through to the economy. But uh, certainly retired people and, and, and those who have been cashed up will be benefiting a lot from higher interest rates. And, and, and whilst the market is dismissive of it, saying it's bad for stocks, it's good for people. And that's why I think the, the potential recession is going to be pushed down the road because there are all of these elements that actually are quite positive in terms of cash generation, as there were before, 
One of the things I feel about interest rates is uh, we talk about the new normal, higher interest rates. Well, maybe actually it's the old normal because, of course, money has to have some kind of value. It was only the policies which were misguided of many of the central banks of pushing interest rates down so low that they ended up becoming negative. Uh, put money in a situation where it was basically free. And of course, if it's free, people will borrow large amounts. Um, and when interest rates go up to what they should be, which is probably something in the region of three, four, five, six percent, um, they're terribly surprised. So I think we're actually going back to the old normal rather than having a new normal. Bank of America have done some work and they've looked at interest rates going back every year now uh, to 1763 when uh, the USA was founded and they've concluded that we are in the worst treasury bond bear market in history. Um, and over the last three years, if you put money into TLT, which is the long-dated treasury bond ETF, you would have lost almost half your money um, in, in three years. And so when you put it into perspective, I mean, these are astonishing moves we're seeing in Treasury bonds at the moment, aren't they? Well, yes, they, but if, it, you also it, look long, if you also look long term, we've had a, what, a 30, 35 year bond bull market where it was a no brainer just to have assets in, in bonds. And mm. um, that's going to be a very big change for uh, uh, things like pension funds. Yeah, um, I, I think the issue, though, is that very few of the the money managers, the, certainly the people who are big at managing f fixed income investments, they're never going to tell you that it's um, a bad time to be invested. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but Barry, it's like catching a falling knife, isn't it? People keep plunging into the treasury bond market because they like uh, the yields, they like the safety of treasury bonds. They keep buying them only to get hit um, very hard every time when these long-term yields keep on rising. Well, I think what's been said so far is correct. I mean, this is a transformative period in which the bull market in bonds is over. And it's going to take a while, as Richard said, to adjust. Or was it uh, uh, Stuart? I, but the, the fact is, it's a change. And I think that the Fed is, is not going to budge. There won't be a rate hike in November, probably not December. But uh, it, it, it would take a very sharp decline in economic activity for there to be drops in, in interest rates. And I, I think, as, as uh, both your other guests have said, this is a positive development. Savers, finally, for the first time in 20 years in the United States, are now being rewarded. And it takes time for that to work through the system. On the other hand, let's not forget that housing, commercial real estate hit very hard by higher rates. Let me ask you finally about the markets over here. All the interest has been on intervention from the Beijing authorities. We had the national team uh, stepping in last week to buy the big four banks, not in a huge amount. I think they bought about $60 million worth, which is about 0.01% uh, of, of their holdings. But nevertheless, they, they did uh, step in and now also talk about um, um, a state-backed stabilisation fund to shore up the markets, uh, maybe as much as 1 trillion yuan. That's about 140 billion US dollars. What do you make of these measures now to, to, to quite actively intervene in the markets, in effect? Uh, well, it's necessary because the markets are in a bad way. They haven't been performing particularly well. You've got this vast amount of debt, as we've talked about, 
endlessly in the property sector. The property sector represents over 30% of the market still, despite the collapse that it's incurred. Um, the, the central authorities do need to do something, but it, I, I honestly don't think they're going to be able to do enough. Why should they, though? I mean, the market's functioning quite normally, isn't it? Just that it's going down, but it's, it is functioning yes, quite normally and it's not yeah. broken in any way. It's just that the, the authorities it. don't like the direction it's gone in. Correct. They love, to con- they love to be able to control everything. And this is something they've not been able to control. And, and they're trying to bring back some element of control. I'm not sure they're going to succeed. It always reminds me of uh, European Union of, uh, officials and um, uh, the, the, that I used to talk to, who used to talk about market malfunction. The, there's actually <laughs> no thing as market malfunction. The market functions particularly well. It may be that we don't actually like the direction it's going in. Which is, in effect, what they're doing, isn't it? I mean, when they intervene, they always intervene in one direction only. They, they never um, intervene when things get overvalued and, you know, end up in a bubble and tell everyone you should be selling. That's right. Everybody loves a bull market. Mm. Okay, well, thank you all very much. It's great to talk to you. Nice to hear your uh, thoughts this morning. You heard there, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details on on the business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter. That's at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Sam Favur, CEO at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Have a good Tuesday. Money Talk 